And welcome to The Real Money Show. The number to start investing is one eight seven seven eight silver Head to therealmoneyshow.com or guildhallwealth.com as well. And while you're there, click on the e-store to start investing. So, uh, Darren, give us a quick update. Where's silver and gold sitting? It's been a great week this week in metals. And fortunately, our year-to-date on both gold and silver is super positive. Gold is up 9% on the year. Well, its sister metal there, silver, is up 16%. So I'm sure... David's going to have a few things to say about this, but right now as we tape the show on Friday, gold is sitting at 1290, just below 1300. We tapped over it during the week. Well, at the same time, silver sitting at about $18.26 to 1830. So really nice week for both metals, both positive. And in silver, this is our best start for silver since 1983. So I'm expecting big things in January. There's been a lot of lag, and as listeners know, we've waited a very long time to see any type of gain in silver, but the fundamentals that uh, underlie this market have never been stronger, and I expect that we're going to continue to see speculators looking for havens from slowing growth, and they're going to pile into silver. Now, this week, holdings and exchange-traded products, ETFs, if you will, backed by the metal, have posted, that is gold, have posted now their third straight weekly gains, while U.S. government data show money managers raised their net bullish wagers to the highest since August. So an ounce of gold uh, bought as much as 71.5 ounces of silver uh, on this past Thursday compared with an average of 58 over the past decade, which is signaling that the white metal is very inexpensive relative to gold right now. So we continue to see that ratio shrink slightly here on Friday, but I suspect that we're going to continue to see big things happen over the month of January. It looks to me as though the tide has turned, John, and uh, I think Jeremy and Paul would agree on this, but there is good reason to think that the people that are coming in talking about silver that have been saying it's going to rise are finally getting their just desserts because as of Friday's close last week, gold is up, as I said, and silver as well. So we are seeing big things happen behind here. We've got the shock of the Swiss currency debacle that's occurred now. We talked about it on last week's show in the fallout. We've got ECB speculation happening with respect to money printing happening over there, and we're really just concerned that the overall uh, picture is one which uh, is not good for money managers and our average normal investment. So we're going to take a minute here. I'm so excited. We're going to get uh, David Morgan on the air, and this is going to be a perfect time for him to come in and talk about what he thinks silver is going to do in 2015. But look out. We think silver and gold is going to go much higher. Guildhall is the place where you can get some of that silver and gold, and uh, hopefully everything will go well there. In the meantime, the number to start investing as we get started here, one eight seven seven eight silver Make sure you go to The Real Money Show or guildhallwealth.com while you're there. Click on the e-store, and uh, I want to remind you that the promotion is still currently active. For every 100-ounce bar of silver you purchase, you receive a one silver maple leaf. What a great deal, don't you think? Pretty happening. We've been so busy on this this week. It's been incredible. There's been so many people going to the e-store and purchasing 100-ounce bars of silver just to get the maple leaf, and it's a great, great deal. And we're uh, very excited to have the pleasure of speaking with David Morgan today. David Morgan is a widely recognized analyst in the precious metals industry and consults for hedge funds and high net worth investors, mining companies, depositories, and bullion dealers. He's a publisher of the Morgan Report on Precious Metals, author of Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, and featured uh, speaker in investment conferences all over North America, Europe, and Asia alike. Well, it's been a challenging year for precious metals this year, but a real buying opportunity nonetheless in the last uh, couple of months. Silver broke out of its five-month downtrend last week, but as with gold, the move was unfortunately not confirmed by action in the stock market. What is your current position uh, on silver and gold prices, David, at this point in time? Well, my current position is we've probably bottomed. I want to be cautious here. I've done a little better picking the tops on the way up than I have the bottoms on the way down, but nonetheless, we had a spike low recently where we actually got into the 14s in the aftermarket of the overseas market, and silver rallied substantially from there on very big volume. Uh, key reversal, and those are called key for a reason. So, from all the data that we can see, and you know, being in this market for so many years, et cetera, I really think the bottom is in. Having said that, I did forecast the rally that uh, we had recently which is off that spike low. And then when I said we probably get into the 17th level and wallow around that level for a while, and the most likely scenario was to 
fall back off of that level. In the last few years, we've seen the metals trade into the last trading day of the year, establishing uh, like the lows for the year. And that, that uh, is probably a likely scenario here. I doubt we're going to see new lows in silver, possibly in gold. Gold started the year at around 1,200. We're roughly at 1,200 now. So although it's certainly gone up and down, uh, year over year, and the way you get that reported in the mainstream press is going to show that you know gold is up a few percent or down a few percent if it remains near this level by the, the last trading session. Silver, on the other hand, is down you know uh, significantly from the level that it started the year at, which is around twenty. So uh, you know gold is obviously holding up better than silver on a year over year basis. Uh, as far as the uh, the overall equity market uh, is concerned. The uh, internals are extremely weak. And what I mean by internals is you have increasing prices on decreasing volume. That is something that's not sustainable. And anyone that does even a cursory view of, of technical work knows that when you have that kind of uh, underlying weakness in the market, that uh, it isn't going to be too much longer before you will see that weakness show up in the price structure. So I'm a little bit uh, negative or fairly negative on the overall equity market, and I'm uh, neutral to strong uh, to bullish on the metals market. It's, uh, you know, it's taken longer than I forecast, quite honestly. I thought after the big spike from the $19 level all the way up to 48 and I was lucky to catch the top until people – from the about 30-something level on up, you know, please be careful buying at these prices because, you know, there's going to be, uh, this is parabolic. It's going to end. It's probably going to end soon. And, uh, you know, make sure that you buy some maybe, but not all, et cetera. So I was trying to give the warning, you know, even in the public domain that, uh, you know, things are getting a bit frothy in the silver market. However, having said that, I have to be, uh, you know, finish the story. And I really thought, you know, once the decline started, that uh, the $26 level was probably going to hold. And it did for a very long time. And then it broke through that on very obvious manipulation. I mean, if you go and look at what happened uh, at those price levels, 15.50 for gold and 26 for silver, the amount of paper sales was so astronomical relative to what the physical positions are. It was ridiculous, and yet uh, certainly had a very large effect on price. And I think that was a psychological move as well, because once we broke that level to the downside in both gold and silver, a lot of people that had been bullish up to that point decided that uh, things were not you know right with the metals, regardless of what the fundamentals said. And they moved on to other asset classes, the stock market being primarily the beneficiary. More of our interview here in just a moment. If you want to start investing in the meantime, one eight seven seven eight silver Go to realmoneyshow.com and guildhallwealth.com. Click on the e-store. You can do that to start investing as well. Uh, currently, the promotion is, and take advantage of this, every 100-ounce bar of silver you purchase now, you'll receive one silver maple. There is a lot to be said for what is happening behind the scenes versus what we see in the paper pricing. And recently, you've been discussing the fact that physical silver demand is up with record sales of silver eagles, uh, maple leaves in 2014. And total silver uh, industrial demand, as forecasted by the Silver Institute, is expected to pick up as much as 27%. And that could add as much demand as about 140-plus million ounces of silver uh, during and through up till 2018. What do you see in terms of the supply and demand picture for the next couple of years yourself? Yes, great question and really right to the heart of the matter. First of all, let's talk about um, demand on, on in two frames. One is the you know retail investor market, and the other is the industrial side. And I'll break the uh, retail demand down into the small collector, you know, or small saver, or silver stackers are referred to. And these people are relentless in their uh, you know conviction about the silver market, and I applaud them. And I'm probably one of them, uh, where I continue to purchase uh, on a dollar-cost average basis. I also do try to pick the lows from time to time, but I'm pretty cautious as far as, uh, you know, not spending everything saying, oh, this is absolutely it. I did buy at the recent spike low. I was not able to get in 
at that uh, time, even though I tried, I actually was actually locked in about sixteen twenty-five, which relative to the cost of producing silver, still you know very undervalued. But back on points, the one thing about the uh, investment demand side is that the small savers continue, obviously by the amount of eagles and maples and the silver rounds, et cetera, sold. But the and, uh, the institutional side has been very, very quiet. You haven't seen any big purchases by the physical silver trust from Sprott. You haven't seen uh, Central Fund for Canada make any silver purchases in, in quite some time. And I'm kind of looking for that. You would think, uh, you know, the fundamentals, in my view, and many haven't changed. In fact, they've actually improved, meaning that the overall global economy is certainly not doing that well, regardless of what the mainstream press says. So for people that have not participated in the precious metals as either a hedge or a way to uh, benefit with uh, appreciation of the asset are on the sidelines. And so there's a lot of uh, potential uh, new buyers that could come into the market, but the leaders of the market, so to speak, the you know institutional money really hasn't made a move here, even though the prices, the price levels are really very, very favorable to a longer-term investor. So I really like to see uh, more participation, let's say, by at least one, if not more. And I think once one takes place, then you might see a follow-through by another one or two. But I am very... Uh, clear about you know the reasons why they may not be participating at these levels and it isn't because the price isn't very tempting it has to do with the structure of the asset class where they need to have a premium on their asset in order to be able to float the uh, prospectus and go through the procedures that's required in order to buy more so in other words if you don't have a premium in the physical asset trust PSLV as an example uh, they're not able to go into the market and actually purchase. So uh, the fund has been actually at a slight discount at times and a slight premium at times. It's kind of oscillated back and forth. So, uh, you know, that's something I'm looking for in 2015. I think it'll take place. I'm not sure which one or both or more, uh, that type of thing. The other one that's a little uh, tough to figure out is the uh, – GLD and the SLV. The GLD has, you know, had a pretty big offtake, while whereas the SLV has actually had, a, you know, more silver come into it. So there's, you know, a little bit of discrepancy there. Of course, then you can, you know, build the argument the other direction and say, but yes, David, but if you look at uh, the Singapore exchange and the amount of silver inventory that was once there and what's left, it's been depleted, uh, you know, in a very, very significant way, which is true. I'm just trying to be factual here. What I'm really seeing along about way perhaps is that the demand side for silver on the investment uh, side is extremely difficult to figure out. Uh, you know, I use the best studies in the world and of course my own analysis and my own connections. And so I'll state this. I think that the uh, retail demand is is strong, much stronger than the price would indicate. I think that's you can take that as fact, although it's my opinion, but it's a very steady opinion. And then I think on the uh, institutional side, I think we're just going to have to wait, but I believe the demand is still there, and I think that you will see it uh, come into the fore sometime during 2015. Now, going to the industrial demand, if you go back um, better than a decade, the demand side for silver was roughly 35% of the market. In the last several years, it's been about 50% of the market, so it's gone uh, up even while silver production has gone up. But it's leveled off. It's been around the 500 million ounce round numbers for quite some time and leveled off. And it really hasn't varied that much. I mean, people make a big deal about, you know, industrial demands falling off but uh, or, or increasing. We haven't seen a substantive increase uh, other than the one I just outlined where we went from like the, I forget the exact numbers, I want to give the correct idea, but 350 million ounces on the industrial side up to 500 million or 550 million ounces on the industrial side. And there, there again, to repeat, leveled at that area for quite some time. Now we're looking at an increase of about oh, roughly 25% basis this uh, article, excuse me, this paper put out by the Silver Institute that was prepared by this uh, group, uh, CRU, and that's available uh, on the web. Uh, it's an independent uh, 
authority, and they did a pretty good study on the silver market. It's pretty similar to the 10-year analysis I did back in 2010. And so this would be substantive on the demand side, and they cover you know silver and batteries, ethylene oxide, uh, automotive, brazing and solders, printed circuits. But primarily the driver, again, in all that is photovoltaics. And the study that I used for photovoltaics that showed that we would be using approximately 130 or 140 million ounces of silver on an annual basis in photovoltaics was fairly accurate for the first few years from 2010 to, say, 2012 or so, but fell off. And it really wasn't because the demand for solar panels had fallen off. What had fallen off or what has taken place is that the amount of silver used per panel decreased substantially, which is pure economics. I mean, that's true of any business. You basically want to use as little of a product as possible, especially if it's a commodity that's you know fairly high-priced, and, you know, make the, uh, the end product, uh, you know, very, very reliable, very, uh, you know, long life, that type of thing. So what happened is that the, the increased demand on solar panels, uh, they, they, the manufacturers, began to look at them, you know, and the ways that they could improve. And they've improved them. And in the improvement, it uses less silver per panel. Nonetheless, the uh, thirst for solar seems to be, according to the study, uh, robust, and I believe that's true. And so you're going to see a driver on the industrial side, and I think that a lot of the drivers on the industrial side are not that economic dependent. A lot of people say, well, David, that sounds great, but, you know, we're you know, at the prefaces of another, you know, global downturn or whatever, and it certainly seems to be the case, and I agree with that. But a lot of these areas, photovoltaics in particular, uh, you know, printed circuits, I mean, the reason that this study shows what it does is that the, that silver is being used in these products because it's the best available and the most economic available. So in other words, uh, if you want to save money, in uh, making these products, you're going to want to use silver uh, in the application. So I'm very, um, you know, not overly, uh, you know, bullish about it, uh, but very bullish. I mean, I think that, I think it's realistic, in other words. I don't think it's overstating the case. It could be. I mean, you got to remember who you're talking to. I'm rather much, you know, one of the bigger bulls in the silver market out there. But nonetheless, after you have read the study like three times, I think that uh, their projections are actually, uh, I wouldn't say they're that conservative, but I don't think they overstate the case at all. I think it's rather uh, significantly uh, well thought and researched. So I think that this is a very good factor for the silver demand. But one thing I'd like to go on and you didn't ask is on the demand side is what I've been alluding to, and that's a downturn in the global economy. I mean, if you could take away 70% of the uh, supply in any market, then obviously you've had a big supply disruption. And people fail to realize some, I mean, very studied silver bulls know this, but 70% of the silver market is a result of base metal mining. So if we have a a very large global pullback, and it certainly looks like we will with, you know, 70 million uh, apartments built in China that are unoccupied. I mean, talk about a misallocation of capital. And China being the main driver for the commodities, generally speaking, not only the energy markets, but, you know, aluminum and tin and lead, zinc, copper. With that demand subsiding in a rather significant way, you're going to see less, not only less demand, you're going to see less supply because the demand isn't there. And what that could indicate is that there'll be less silver coming to the surface due as a result of base metal mining. But there's a big degradation in the amount of lead, zinc, and copper that's demanded on a global basis, then there'll be less silver coming to the surface. And again, that's 70% of the market. So you've got that factor, and you also have the fact that most primary silver producers making up the other 25% of the market are underwater. I mean, there's a few out there that can make money at $10 silver, but they can put those on one hand, and there's a couple fingers left over. The rest of them were marginal around $20, but they're not able to sustain forever at these prices. 
So that, again, could, I'm not saying would, could curtail the market, uh, even on the primary silver producer. So we have a situation where the price is dictating a lot, the global economy is dictating a lot, the industrial side is dictating a lot, and for all those reasons combined, I see it as a synergy. I see an industrial demand increase, I see an investment demand increase, I see the institutional side uh, having demand that's pent up that hasn't been realized yet. And then, of course, with the unfolding of the global situation being what it is, uh, there could be a run to gold. And with a run to gold, then what you would see is a uh, you know, little sister silver going along with it. And since it's a smaller market and there's a lot of people that wouldn't be able to afford gold once it really gets going, they would spill over in the silver market. So I'm still rather bullish on the metals. And we'll take a short break. More of our interview with David Morgan on the way. In the meantime, you want to start investing, one eight seven seven eight silver Go to guildhallwealth.com or therealmoneyshow.com. While you're on guildhallwealth.com, uh, a reminder, click on the e-store, and for every 100-ounce bar of silver you purchase now, you will receive one silver maple. And back with more of our interview with David Morgan right here on The Real Money Show. I think that it's a very valid point when you're discussing the extension, by extension, uh, the demand side of the market. If there is a global slowdown coming and we can expect that there's going to be some type of liquidity crunch similar to 2008, do you think sentiment is different this time around with investors? Do you think they uh, have enough common sense to move into better assets like silver, let's say, or gold, for that matter, uh, prior to this occurring? Or does it the same thing happen again? We trail down and then, of course, silver and gold end up being the fastest two uh, assets to recover. The honest answer is I don't know. Right. And I say that with a lot of conviction. Sure. I mean, if you go back to the 2008 uh, crisis, and I was, you know, right there and had a pretty big silver position. And, you know, when it came down, I was not happy. And also a bit surprised. I thought silver could probably go. There's always the excuse that silver is more of an industrial metal, and so if the stock market sells off hard, silver's going to go with it and all that. And I get all that. And, and there's some validity to that. But gold fell off as well. Obviously, not as much as silver. It's a bigger market. But I was surprised. I still thought that, uh, Gold might, you know, come down slightly or or not move or possibly go up against it, which is what, you know, you most of the academics will tell you, me included, that, you know, in that kind of a sell-off in the stock market and uncertainty in the market and panic in the market, you would expect gold to, you know, at least hold its its value and or go higher. And that's not what happened. However, what did happen was that they recovered very, very quickly. But now you're asking, would it happen again? And I don't think it would. I mean, I, the answer I said, I'll repeat, I don't know. But the psychology of the market really has been beat up. I mean, silver's been in this bearish mode for like four years and gold well over three now. And so the mood uh, of the silver and gold bulls, I mean, a lot of them have given up. I know some personally rather significant silver positions that basically threw in the towel at, you know, 25 or 22 or under 20 even, and basically probably will never come back in the market. So we do need new buyers. Uh, the bulls that have conviction are holding. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, they may be buying more, but they're waiting for various prices, and some of them may lighten up. I mean, if you're over uh, committed to a market, and I stress that you shouldn't be, you know, I, I really, as much as I like the metals for lots of reasons, it doesn't mean that that's the only asset class you should participate in. But regardless, people um, that are overcommitted may have, let's say, an average price of, let's just pick a number, 26. Uh, that's a big psychological number in my studied view. So we get up to, let's say, uh, and they hold their position and say their average price is 26. So they get to 26 and, you know, they got 50% of their net worth in silver. They might decide to lighten up at a break-even point, for example. So it's not going to be like 2008 coming back up, where it was so brief that most of the people just held, and as the price went up, they either bought more or held in a position. In this case, you've got a lot of what's called overhead resistance. So a lot of those people that are overcommitted or whatever will get to the point of break-even, wherever that is for them individually, and see, you know, silver's back to 22. That's where I bought it. Thought it was so cheap, you know. Morgan told me that was the cost of production for XYZ mining, and I have, you know, if they get the report, they know some of the primary silver producers, what they exactly, you know, what their exact costs are with no fanfare and no BS, absolute truth. 
And so they bought it because of, you know, our research. And they said, you know what, uh, it's below that. Now it's back to it. And I, I'm out. I don't want any more silver. I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, there's some of those people. I mean, and that's human nature. You can understand it. I understand it. I still think that everyone should have a position in the metals. And I firmly believe that. But that doesn't mean very many people agree with me. In fact, I got a 99% anti uh, mortgage contingency out there. Only 1% of the people out there actually believe in the metals and buy physical metals. So, you know, it's a very, very small market. Nonetheless, that overhead resistance would, would caution me that you wouldn't see it similar. I think it'd have to ebb and flow and work its way up. But, however, I must give a caveat to that statement. That's in normal market conditions. Right. We're in anything but normal market conditions. So, as an example, if things were starting to get even more, I have to use the word bizarre, in the uh, currency markets. And the reason I chose that word is it's uh, meaningful that with what's going on with the Russian ruble and and being able to uh, halt trading in some instances and going up to, you know, 17%, it reminds me being old enough to know what Volcker did with the U.S. dollar pushing interest rates over 20%. Right. So with all that happening, I can't rule out that there couldn't be a sudden run into gold or run into silver because of uh, conditions that are, you know, once in a lifetime or once every, you know, five lifetimes type of scenario. And I won't rule that out. In fact, I actually think that the probability of that is actually quite high, much, much greater than a bell curve would normally show you. In other words, if you look at what's called the, the tail end of the curve, where you have a very low probability of this happening, you have to look at the conditions as they are. And the conditions as they are right now, the probability of some kind of an event uh, are, are very, very high relative to what they are normally. So we're certainly in not normal conditions. So because of that, I can't say that this overhead supply, et cetera, et cetera, would basically mitigate the market because if there was a panic buy for whatever reason, uh, then people that owned it would either would hold it and they might even buy more. And then they might tell their friends or neighbors and everybody else. And all of a sudden there's a, you know, there's a run on gold. And so I don't don't want to misrepresent it either way. I want to be as clear and concise and precise as I possibly can, because it's important for people to think these things through. One of my favorite quotes is, chance favors the prepared mind. You have to look at every scenario, and nobody can. I can't, Jim Rickards, you know, any of these people that are pretty good thinkers in these markets, none of us have an exclusive all seeing, all knowing, probable, you know, probability. I mean, we we have probabilities, excuse me, I'll back up, but what we don't have is an all knowing knowledge of what could take place. We have basic scenarios, and you of know course. what? The scenario that takes place is probably one that's different than any of us have thought of. Looking back, we'll say, oh, why didn't I see that? Right. Why didn't I see that China would come in and tell Japan to do this or jump, you know, drop the yen, not the dollar, but because yen got dumped. It took the dollar down, or some other scenario. You know, one I don't talk about often, and we could talk about them all day. And again, all of them could be incorrect, but the idea is correct that we're in a situation now in a global financial empire that is so uncharted, unknown, and there's so many uh, caveats to it that the authorities have taken. I mean, putting the uh, U.S. citizenry on the back of the derivatives exposure. So we can bet, and if we're wrong, you pay for it. I mean, you know, this is ridiculous, but this is what has taken place recently. So caution, caution, caution. Uh, if you're not in the metals, I think you should be. And again, the um, correct amount is an individual choice. I've always recommended 10% as a minimum. And I think under current conditions, 20% really isn't uh, excessive for most people. But beyond that... Uh, you can get overexposed, and then if the metals continue to trend down or sideways for a while, people get discouraged rather easily. I mean, there are people with you know, long-term horizons and strong convictions, and or others that just basically took a 10% position you know, some time ago. I mean, uh, certainly my average price is pretty low, even though I've bought you know, as high as 30 actually, but it uh, wasn't a, a significant amount relatively to you know, what we hold. But nonetheless... Um, the you know average price because I began so early is you know rather low relative to you know what the price has been. Right. So I probably beat that one to death. But that's a great question because it's important to know that uh, you know the black swan and all that that people kind of make light of uh, they do happen and they could happen and the way things are going right now 
with what's going on with the Russian ruble, what's going on in the energy markets. By the way, let me just add something very important. That sure. It's out on, out on the net, and a lot of people don't know this. But what took down, or at least was pointed at, uh, historically for the takedown of the global financial crisis of 2008 was a subprime mortgage debt. And now the subprime oil debt is what I'll call it, which is all this fracking that's been going on, which is all in the junk bond markets. So in other words, it's uh, subsidized, similar to the way the mortgage market was subsidized, is underwater significantly. And that amount of debt is at least double what it is in the subprime market. So I want to be perfectly crystal clear and repeat myself here. The amount of derivatives exposure that caused the 2008 financial global crisis, uh, that event, that's history. We're now in a position where we're weaker than ever. There's fewer banks than ever. And the global exposure in the derivative situation is twice as bad as it was there. And it's in a key element, more as important or more important in my view than shelter for living. And that is the energy markets. So we're in very thin ice as far as I'm concerned. And this is something that people need to wake up and, and realize because, in my view, we could get to a situation where the run to gold is so strong. And a lot of these people that write on, you know, what's considered the fringe, I don't consider it the fringe, but some people do, that, you know, there's all this manipulation in the market and, you know, where's the gold and how many times has it been hypothecated and rehypothecated and who really owns it, et cetera. The point I want to make is that you could get in a situation where the physical market starts to seize up or does seize up. And maybe only for a day or two or a week or two or counterparties cannot be determined. There's a lot out there in this convoluted derivatives market. And if that were to occur then there'd be a run to the secondary market. And the secondary market isn't necessarily the futures and options market, it's the mining shares. Right. So you would see, you know, could see a run into gold and silver like you've never seen in the history of mankind, especially if the physical market was starting to have problems uh, with physical uh, take, offtake uh, or derivatives exposure or both at the same time. In other words, uh, claim, multiple claims on certain on, on gold and silver that couldn't be determined or had uh, certain timelines on them that, oh, well, you can't get you go back until, you know, September 2016. That's what the contract says. And, you know, on and on it goes. So it's a very, very deep rabbit hole. It's one that I don't think any one analyst knows everything about. Certainly I've looked at as much as I possibly can. I've tried to separate the wheat from the chaff the whole time. Sure. But I can't give you an absolute, but I certainly have a good feeling for it. I'd say my feel for the market is probably as good as most, and I do it from both, you know, from the bottom up. I do it from the retail investor standpoint all the way up, and a top-down analyst that I am, from the commodity only. What is silver? Why is silver important? Who would want silver? Why would they want silver, et cetera? So I look at it from both directions, and I think, again, that that gives me a rather different view than you might get from a Wall Street analyst that looks at silver and basically has, you know, a huge derivatives book and helps, you know, uh, major uh, producers hedge their positions, which you know, I'm not against. I'm just saying that their uh, viewpoint certainly might not be as broad as mine is. And we'll take a short break. More of our interview with David Morgan on the way. In the meantime, you want to start investing, one eight seven seven eight silver Go to guildhallwealth.com or therealmoneyshow.com. While you're on guildhallwealth.com, uh, a reminder, click on the e-store, and for every 100-ounce bar of silver you purchase now, you will receive one silver maple. And back with more of our interview with David Morgan right here on The Real Money Show. In terms of sentiment, if you look back at the 70s and what happened in the middle of the decade, I mean, I can imagine how many people kicked themselves in the rear end for having left behind the gold market only to see it uh, flourish coming to the end of the decade. And, of course, it was dramatic. I mean, with the drop in pricing, uh, most people probably walked away from it like they, you know, the sentiment is more recently uh, being in terms of the silver and gold market. But I mean, it, as far as moving forward, this is why, and we have said the same thing too, that 10 to 20% uh, in your portfolio that you might have in gold or silver in physical form is so is so prudent. It's so smart because you don't know what's going to happen. And God forbid another major event does happen and there is something like this subprime oil that does come to fruition. We're watching it closely, but if it does, it's going to be a horrid thing. And I don't want anybody to think that that's what we're going to relive. But, I mean, it does put the emphasis on understanding the importance of having assets like gold and silver in the portfolio. 
So for 2015, David, before we uh, let everybody know how to get in touch with you, what is the best case scenario for David Morgan in terms of what silver and gold might be doing? Yes, uh, I'm going to answer that uh, backing up to what you said. I mean, sure. You go back to the last market, and you saw you know gold you know go from its fixed price all the way up to around 200 and fall off to 100. And it took quite some time to get back up to that 200 level. And again, using my analogy earlier, that there are people that bought probably at that top at 200-ish. And then when it finally worked its way back to that level, sold out because they were broke even and they were tired because they watched it, you know, go lose, lost 50% of their investment value based in paper dollars. They saw it go from 200 to 100 round numbers back up to 200 and got out. But once it made that $200 uh, or came back up to that level, accelerated from there, to 800. It did a fourfold increase in a rather small amount of time. Silver, on the other hand, did even better. It started in 1979 at $6, and then in January, January 1979 at $6, and in January 1980, around, it went up to 50 So you had like an eight-fold increase. So one thing that I, on my new book, The Silver Manifesto, that will be out early in 2015, and I wrote this book because I really believe that this is the time that the people that have been waiting on the sidelines or don't understand are starting to wake up. And I want everybody to. I mean, you know, I, I feel for the you know bulls out there that are underwater or upside down. I, I you know have empathy for that position. Nonetheless, I would encourage them, and hopefully they didn't overcommit, to just hold. Regardless, uh, my point being is that something that I actually got from Jeff Christian from CPM Group stating that 90% of the move comes in the last 10% of the time. And I did the arithmetic on that. I forget the exact numbers, but the idea is very, very sound. It was something like 88% of the market happened in the last 7% of the time. But the point is that once a thing accelerates, which is what we talked about earlier about a potential black swan, that... Um, People are running the gold and running the silver for whatever reason or reasons that uh, it's acceleration phase. So you don't want you want to be in early. You don't want to be in that panic manic buying phase where maybe this time you can't even get it, or you can only get it in you know retail quantity size. You can't get it significantly as a hedge fund manager. You know, the, for uh, Sprott, for example, wanting to buy another twenty or thirty million ounces of physical silver can't be obtained. Now, I'm not stating that's the case. I just want to give the idea sure. that once these panic buys start, that uh, things change, and it can change rather rapidly. So where do I see 2015? I see 2015 as a moderately uh, uptrending year, if everything holds together as it is, uh, with no black swans involved. So I think we're going to work our way back. I would see, you know, what I really want to see for a psychological perspective, price-wise as well as price points. I like to see gold above 15, 15, and 26 on silver to get over that that breakdown point that was so significant and is held now for quite some time. Where again, I think the psychology of the market was beaten up enough to where a lot of people that wanted to buy decided to leave, or did not participate in the market, and those that told themselves that they would buy low really haven't. You know, going back to my chance favorite prepared mind. If you were of the idea that, geez, you really want to hold out and buy when it got low, well, now's your opportunity. I am ringing the bell. I am stating so. Is this the exact bottom? I don't know. What I do know is if you can buy any commodity under the cost of production and have some patience, you're going to make money. And that's true of both gold and silver, particularly silver market right now. Should you own silver or gold? I think you should own both. I think the older you are and the more conserved you are, the more you should favor gold. And I think the younger, more aggressive, and the more risk tolerant that you are, the more you should favor silver. So I think I'll conclude with that. If you're enjoying the interview with David Morgan this afternoon, we'll uh, get to more of that in just a sec. I want to remind you to start investing. It's one eight seven seven eight silver Go to guildhallwealth.com, click on the e-store. And right now, every 100-ounce bar of silver you purchase, you will receive one silver maple. Well, David, I mean, it's been a pleasure. And again, you're very insightful and We've taken your advice year and year and year, uh, one after the other. And to have you spell out some of the pitfalls and to talk about what is uh, your expectation for the coming months is is awesome. And we do thank you for it. How can our listeners get in touch with you, David, and uh, use some of your services? Well, first thing I'd like to encourage everyone to do is occasionally visit our website. Uh, it's not a static website. I do put up uh, videos uh, oh, every week or so. There's one on there right now that's only going to be up uh, for another couple of hours, and it's regarding a movie 
and I've used these movie clips in the past to make a point, but it talks about the uh, Russian ruble and what the Russians have done with their foreign currency exchange and basically sandbagging the U.S. dollar. Could be pertinent, could not. I'm not really forecasting. It has meaning. It has meaning from the aspect that causes people to think. So I'd encourage people just to go to the website, silver-investor.com, and check it out probably on a weekly basis. If you want to follow all my work that's in the public domain, you can go to Silver Guru on YouTube. If you want to see everything I read that I think is important to not only the metals markets but the general economic conditions, then you can follow us at SilverGuru22 on Twitter. Uh, that's put up there myself personally and a couple of our staff members, and that's all who has access to post on their Twitter account. But if you're really following these markets closely, you can see basically if I read 10 articles and these are the top two articles I think people should see, I send them on a Twitter feed. I'm not really interested in people knowing if I'm having a latte or not. That doesn't mean right. at all. I don't use Twitter for that. Um, also, if you go to the webpage, silverdashinvestor.com, if you're there the first time, it's a pop-up window that only bothers you once, and you can get on our free e-alert letter. I really think that that's important uh, going forward because we do do a weekly wrap-up, and we give out the uh, interviews like this for everybody, and it's free. And we also give insights, and we take questions from all readers, not only our paid members. So uh, those are all free available. If you're serious about the metals market, we do leave our best thinking and our consultations and that type of thing. Uh, in the Morgan Report itself, there's three levels of service, and that's described over on the right-hand side. And you know, if you really have questions or whatever, I mean, at this point in time, with our business down rather significantly, uh, you know, occasionally, I'm not going to say I do this in every case, but occasionally I'll actually pick up the phone myself uh, if I have the time and can, you know, talk to people. I used to give them like five minutes or so. But we do do consulting. I've consulted with people that I can't name that are rather significant in the industry, not only the silver mining side, which you could probably guess, um, but also significant uh, on the uh, institutional side. In fact, I'll just brag slightly, but there was a gentleman that visited Bill Gross some years ago before Bill left Timco that he started. And after visiting Bill, he called me and took a rather substantial silver position. And that always raised my eyebrows in a way because, uh, you know, the bond market is the keys of the kingdom. It's the debt markets that the big problem lies in. And I think anyone that knows anything about finance uh, understands that. And this is where the problems are starting to show right now with this all call at the beginning of the currency war with uh, the Russian ruble. So interesting times. Again, I don't think 2015 is going to be that significant. I think it will be higher. I think the things will probably hold together. It's hard to know, but uh, you'd rather be early than late, so I'll leave it at that. And I want to thank David Morgan for joining us this afternoon. Again, the number to start investing, one eight seven seven eight silver Go to either therealmoneyshow.com or guildhallwealth.com. While you're the second one, uh, click on the e-store to start investing. And right now, by the way, take advantage of this. Every 100-ounce bar of silver you purchase, you'll receive one silver maple. We'll get into Colored Diamond Show next. Hang on. And back into The Real Money Show. The number is one eight seven seven eight silver Go to therealmoneyshow.com or guildhallwealth.com. And while you're there, every 100-ounce bar of silver you purchase, you will receive one silver maple. So keep that in mind when you're uh, investing into diamonds, guys. Jeremy, what's, uh, what's the story? What's new? Um, one of the things that's new is De Beers has um, put out an article uh, basically discussing this concept of recycling diamonds. Uh, it's not new for, for myself. Uh, a few years back... Um, I saw a seminar with uh, with Rappaport, and he was discussing that in North America, a lot of people, um, they call it recycling diamonds, meaning, meaning a diamond's been in the family for mm-hmm. a long time, and they pass it down, or, they, or they're reselling that diamond down the road. The reason they're bringing this up is because they're realizing that within the next few years, there's going to be disruptions in supply, that... Um, it's it's going to be tougher to supply the market that um, mining is is on a is on a downtrend. So they're shifting gears. I guess a diamond isn't forever. It can be passed down or <laughs> or resold, and uh, that that makes us happy at Guildhall because that's something that we do. For anyone who purchases a diamond from Guildhall, we're more than happy to help them resell that diamond. We don't resell any other diamonds no. than what what we have sold because in our collection we well, there's a very good reason why we don't sell other people's diamonds because we search out the best of quality in a diamond and there are a lot of companies out there will set, settle for second best 
when we buy a diamond, everything about a natural fancy colored diamond has to be correct. The color is the first thing that we look at. Uh, the color has to be evenly saturated on a, a natural fancy colored diamond. The next important thing is the cut, because if the cut has uh, too many facets in it or it's badly cut diamond, you're not going to get the, the fire and the scintillation that comes off of that stone. Thirdly, we look at the carat weight, which is important when we're buying uh, stones for the simple reason that in a, a natural fancy color, anything in a, a yellow uh, you need to go over a carat. Pinks are a lot different because they come in smaller sizes, normally a quarter of a carat and up. Uh, and the other thing that we're looking at, I said the cut, the clarity is the other thing that is very important. So if you look at our website, go to guildhalldiamonds.com, you're going to see in yellow diamonds, the majority of the diamonds that we carry are internally flawless. That means there is no inclusions. There is the odd diamond, which you'll see VS, and the only reason that I purchased those diamonds because of the VS in yellows was all about the color, and the color comes first. But when we go to Argyle Pinks, we only carry VS quality. We don't carry anything below that. So when it does come to reselling a diamond for our clients, every diamond that we've picked out is top draw, top notch, cream of the cream, and it's very, very easy for us to resell that product because we know everything about that product. Yeah, it's a, there's a strong focus on curating our, our diamond collection, and we back that by going out and actually purchasing that and owning it. There, there certainly are companies out there that will sell on behalf of a, of a dealer or a distributor of diamonds. And you'll see a lot of companies that sell a plethora of diamonds, just a lot, a lot of different diamonds. Even in the color, color diamond sphere, we go out and really try to sniper and find that those, those really particularly good quality diamonds. One such diamond is something that we are um, uh, talking about this week, which is a 0.25 uh, fancy purplish pink. It's a brilliant cut diamond, and it's a VS1. Plus it's an Argo diamond. Right, and we're having always a tough time acquiring Argyles, always having a tough time acquiring Argyle diamonds in this sort of size range because they do not last long. This, again, is a fancy purplish pink, and there's definitely a premium on purplish pink diamonds from the Argyle mine. And again, this is a 0.25 brilliant cut. The price on that diamond is 35000 but of course, we're including the taxes this month. So it's a, a great opportunity to get into the Argyle Diamond market. This market is completely on fire, especially for uh, residents of the United States. They are really, really snapping up the Argyle Diamonds. But uh, to get any of them in is always great. And again, these these never last long. I, I, no. I don't I don't want to sound like I'm on the the shopping channel shopping here, channel. but they really don't. And oftentimes they actually don't even make it to the website because our our clients will be purchasing these type of diamonds because they're they're just in that perfect range. So again, a 0.25 purplish pink diamond. Uh, which is a really nice jewel tone, and it's a brilliant shape. And again, it's starting at thirty-five thousand. No, in um, uh, taxes, taxes in, are included. Right? Yeah. And the great thing is, is if you're looking for an investment, if you're putting your kids through university, or you're looking to retire, a diamond like this that is going for thirty-five thousand taxes in is going to appreciate at an unbelievable rate. Argyle pinks are actually doubling every three to four years. So a thirty-five thousand dollar diamond. Easily in seven to ten years is going to be worth over a hundred thousand, wow. and in fifteen years it's going to be a hundred and fifty thousand dollar diamond. The Argyle mine is closing probably between two thousand and eighteen to two thousand and twenty, which means that's the end of these diamonds. There will be no more on the market, and they are going to be holding or carrying a huge, huge premium. So this is an opportunity to get an Argyle pink, a 0.25, that's a quarter of a carat, fancy, purposely pink, $35,000 tax in. This is an absolute steal. It's something that you should put away in a safe deposit box, put it away for your retirement, put it away for your kids' education. You will make nothing but money, and especially being around a brilliant cut. In Argyle pinks, that actually puts about 40% more on the cost of the diamond because you don't normally see rounds mm -hmm. in argyle pinks they're normally emerald cut cushion cut but being a brilliant there is 
uh, you know, an upside. It's a diamond that becomes very, very desirable. So this diamond is appraised at around about $70,000. It's $35,000. Taxes in for the month of December. This diamond is first come, first served. Jeremy, say you don't want to uh, leave it in a safety deposit box. I, you know, it's so nice you want to put it on your finger. Yeah, and you can you can do that with this. What we're seeing is um, uh, a trend in jewelry to take a smaller diamond and put halos around it, right. whether it's one, two, maybe even three halos, and it will really increase the, the um, appearance of the, the size of the diamond and also show off the diamond. With colored diamonds, one of the best ways to show them off is to have a halo or to just match them with, with white diamonds around that diamond because it really, will really bring out the color because you get to see the color next to the, the really nice white diamond as well. So we don't, we don't dislike white diamonds here. Uh, we just really love, love, love color. And, in, and this type of diamond, you could certainly, again, put a couple halos around it, put it into a ring. Um, we could try our absolute darnest, although it would be very difficult to find a similar um, mm. brilliant cut and, and turn those into earrings, So, uh, which we've seen from time to time. We've definitely seen them in, in yellow diamonds. We, we had a, a, a pair of vivid cushion diamonds a couple years ago. And uh, we sold them to uh, one of Darren's clients, actually, and he bought them for his kids. So no that kidding. Was, yeah, wow. that was really – I'm not sure if they were twins or not, but uh, that, was, that was really great to see um, a father doing that and knowing that – I mean, the diamonds obviously have appreciated even since then comfortably over 15% a year. One of the interesting things that uh, happened to me this week, I was listening uh, to one of the radio stations and John Tesh was on and uh, he was talking about trending. And the thing that we've been talking about for years in actual fact is that natural fancy colored diamonds are being purchased, uh, you know, by people right now that are, you know, maybe are in their 40s, early 50s, that second marriages or even marriages that have lasted 25 years and now, you know, are realizing that they want to upgrade on a white diamond. A white diamond is, there's a lot out there. But when you get into a natural fancy colored diamond, it's something different. It's something to behold. It's something that, you know, that women really go after and it's something that they want. And they're realizing that they're appreciating in value. White diamonds tend not to appreciate their impulse items, whereas a natural fancy colored diamond, whether you buy a yellow, Vivid's right now, if you go to our website, Guildhall Diamonds, it's almost impossible to find an internally flawless Vivid diamond. We've got three up or four up right now. They're one a size 162 or 163 and a 175. They are beautiful, beautiful diamonds. But for me right now, the Argyle Pinks are the way to go. This is the best, best investment to get into. Whether you just put it away, put it in a safety deposit box, or even put it into a piece of jewelry, this is going to make you nothing but money. And that number, once again, one eight seven seven eight silver And make sure you go to The Real Money Show and guildhallwealth.com. And while you're there, I want to remind you that for every 100-ounce bar of silver you purchase, you receive one silver maple. This has been The Real Money Show.